listened to the Drew Marshall show before? George Bush is the Antichrist. Honest to God. You think, you think George Bush is yes. the Antichrist? Yes. Okay, so George Bush is the Antichrist because he's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. He's fooling people. He's a trickster. Would you vote for George W. Bush? Absolutely. Why? He's the Antichrist. <laughs> I think the guy needs to read his Bible. <laughs> Would you vote for George W. Bush? Absolutely. I hope he's not the Antichrist because I'm going to vote for the wrong guy. Yeah, I hate when that happens. The Drew Marshall Show, right here on Joy 1250. You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most listened to spiritual talk back program. Start of the journey, I was looking at all the life. There were plants and birds and rocks and things. There were sand and hills and rain. The first thing I met was a fly with a buzz and the sky with no clouds. The heat was hot. Barely past their teenage years when they became literally an overnight musical sensation, I think in 72, as America. They reached a peak in popularity in the early to mid 70s and early 80s. Among the band's best known songs are, of course, this one, A Horse with No Name, Sister Golden Hair, which uh, both reached number one, Ventura Highway, Tin Man. I mean, there's so many. For more than uh, 30 years, Dan Peake has been a prominent musical talent with over 30 albums. His musical resume spans contributions as a founding member of the uh, Grammy-winning supergroup America, Grammy-nominated CCM solo artist and songwriting contributor to world-shaking artists like the the Endorphins, uh, Jars of Clay, Garth Brooks folks. Dan Peake's book, An American Band, The America Story, has been a popular source of insider information about the rock and roll life in a 1970s supergroup. A tremendous read. The website is danpeake.com, and he joins us today on the Drew Marshall Show. What an absolute honor it is to have you. Hey, thank you, Drew, and uh, boy, I appreciate the... uh the build-up there. Can you use all the help we can get around you, here? You, you better live up to that build-up. There let me you tell go. You. That's it. Well, you know, uh, I, uh, first thing i got to say is very rarely do I suck up to guests in the way I'm about to do to you. <laughs> because it's just it's tacky. It's just real too cheesy. It's kind of like feeling, you feel like a third wheel out on a date kind of thing, you know, or a little puppy ch- chasing you around. But, man, I'm telling you, your music had something and i don't know if uh, supernatural or what i don't i don't get it but you had such an impact on so many people and i guess I, i'm just saying thank you for that so well, thanks hey thank you to you and uh the rest of canada in fact and uh our, our first ever show in north america was in uh kitchener waterloo you're kidding no and uh it, it was uh we were received so delightfully and so kindly and warmly by the people there that forever uh, Canada, oh Canada, oh Canada. Oh yeah, <laughs> just like, oh yeah. 
got such a, a, a warm spot and place in, in our hearts. And uh, Well, we've got to be warm people because it's brutally cold up this way, let hey, me tell you. I hear you. I, I always wear my winter woolies when I'm in that area. <laughs> I was just in Kitchener uh, two nights ago on Thursday night. I was there at the Paul Brandt concert. Uh, Paul Brandt is Canada's most awarded male country performer, and what wow. a what a neat guy he is. Wow. Speaking of Kitchener, anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it. There's just so much talent, you know, and uh, we uh, uh, had, had gone to school on Canadian talent from Neil Young and uh, Joni Mitchell. Thank and, you very much. Uh, Thank you. Uh, oh, my goodness. Uh, Gordon Lightfoot and uh, uh, Guess Who? Or no, uh, yeah. Yeah, Guess, guess who. who? Sure, Burton Cummings and uh, Randy Bachman. Oh, absolutely. So uh, we, we, uh, we, you know, learned a lot of our chops and got a lot of our uh, ideas and things from from uh, from folks who who put a huge stamp on the music of uh, of this era, this genre that's been going on for so long. And it's amazing because so many uh, of the kids today, as it were, you know, it's it's been generational. It's kind of handed down. I know there's rap and hip hop and techno and house music and all that other kind of stuff, but the songs that have been kind of come down through the ages and that feel uh, that still, you know, staying alive, uh, not that song, no. <laughs> staying alive, but, but it is kind of staying alive, staying yeah. alive, ooh, 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 yeah. staying alive. Boy, that was beautiful. That just, that moved me right there. <laughs> Hey, listen, with your dad being in the Air Force, you guys moved around a lot to Japan, Pakistan, Greenland, the States. But you ended up in England, you know, the home of the British invasion in 69, right in the thick of it all. What was that like? Oh, my brother and I, uh, my older brother and I had, had learned to play guitar together. And it was great because we could just bounce uh, things off of each other constantly. And we had played in, you know, little sort of high school bands forever. But when my dad got posted to England at the height of the British music revolution and Carnaby Street era, and the tide was beginning to shift somewhat, though, in North American music, again, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, uh, was beginning to sweep back the other way. And here we were at ground zero, and we thought, hey, we're the real deal. We're, we're, we're Americans. We're here in uh, Britain, and all of a sudden, uh, this music is becoming really, really accepted. And so we we uh, just glummed on to that whole concept and went acoustic and started harmonizing, which was something I'd always wanted to do anyway. I grew up in a in a big family. My mother, in order to keep us from killing each other on long road trips and being moved around so frequently, taught my uh i've got five brothers and sisters taught us all how to sing harmony and so that was a way to kill the time and and when america started it was one of the things that i felt strongly about was making it a vocal harmony group i mean obviously csny uh the beach boys but even the beatles if you go and you listen to it there's just so much harmony well and that's funny because they weren't known for their harmony no. but yet there was so much of it yeah it, it, there's such a power to uh, the combining of the human voices together, a cappella, whatever, you know, sans instruments. And so, you know, we, we, it was the right time, the right place, the right sound, the right everything happened. And we, uh, 
we just happened to be there, you know, and, and uh, thank the good Lord that we were. Well, Mom and Dad, of course, love the tunes, and Mom encouraged you to play the piano. Yeah. Uh, and I guess you've been performing on stage since, was it 7 or 12 or something like well, that? Well, you know, did my first recital at the age of 7, but actually started performing uh, and getting paid semi-professionally at the age of 12. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I put... Had put in my dues. By the time I was 19, I you know felt like a seasoned veteran. Had you know done some touring uh, locally and regionally, and we were living in Texas at the time. And you know, just uh, e- even in Pakistan, we actually toured, and which you find difficult to believe. That's because insane. On dirt roads uh, through wadis and up and down uh, mountains and deserts, and kind of on a desert with a car with no name. So it, it was, uh, you know, like I said, by the time I was 19, I, I really uh, had felt like I had, had had paid my dues, and that was roughly the time that the band America took off. So Dan, in some ways it was overnight, but in, in many other ways had certainly uh, put in the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, Dan, how much lawn mowing money did you have to save for you and your brother to get that first guitar? Do you a, whole bunch in fact i swore if i ever owned a house i'd never have a tree in my yard because i got so sick of mowing going around trees, trees. <laughs> and uh what around. was the first guitar was it that les paul uh actually no uh we we got silvertone which was the sears Whoa. Uh, brand of guitar nice the absolute lowest end <laughs> actually the very very first guitar was one acoustic guitar it was a k and the strings I don't even think they make them anymore. I mean, it would be like the Yugo guitars, <laughs> and the strings had to be an inch off the the, the neck. Oh, and, nice! You know, we, we didn't have any idea how you set up a guitar, what was good action, bad action, and uh, literally played it till our fingers bled. But we we fought over it so much that my parents relented and said, "Okay, you, you can each buy a guitar." They were forty dollars a piece at the time, which was like all the money in the world. Hmm. We had to pay him back, and at the time, we were living in Pakistan, so everything came out of the Sears and Roebuck catalog. He ordered it. It came through the APO, and, you know, we waited on tenterhooks, as it were, and finally, a couple months later, here come these two guitars. Mine had been badly damaged. It still worked, but, uh, you know, we... we uh, Started playing those things, and it was we were sort of silver tone aficionados for a long time <laughs> in Pakistan. It was either that or a sitar. That's you know. it. There you go. Just thinking about you moving around, you know, your dad being in the Air Force and uh, uh, growing up in the military family. But but what kind of spiritual life did your family have? I mean, were your parents? You know, I mean, would you describe them as genuine followers of Christ, or were they sort of the typical American family back in the day that thought they were Christians because they were American? Yes, exactly. The latter. Okay. The, they, we went to chapel, you know, base chapel every Sunday. I do believe my parents were God-fearing people. Uh, we, you know, we were raised to try, it was a social gospel. And if you went to a base chapel, you, in fact, I got to tell you, the first time I ever really heard the gospel was on TV anyway, or in some other genre other than, than by a person, I went to many, many, many churches and never heard the gospel. If I did hear it, it didn't, you know, I didn't have ears to hear it. But, but I do believe that, and there still are to this day, many, many quote church buildings you can go into, and you will hear a nice, you know, pablum, and you will hear some nice homilies, and let's all get along. But 
when I heard that Christ had died on the cross for my sins and that as vile of a sinner that I knew that I was already at the age of 12, that I could be saved, that I had a hope, that I could go to heaven by God's grace, uh, it, a light went off, and it, it bore witness with my spirit. But up until then, though, you know, my parents dragged us to church and Sunday school, and we knew some of the Bible stories, but the true, pure essence of the good news, the gospel of salvation through Christ's substitutionary sacrifice and resurrection... Uh, Man, preach it! Did not happen. Hey, preach it. It's been twenty five the last twenty five thirty years, brother. I've been just in the word. I've, it's like a dry, <laughs> dry, dry sponge that just suddenly got a good rain shower, and I've been just uh, just drinking from the well of living water since then. Good uh, for you, man. Good for you, Dan. Would you say you got a double dose of repression, like you're a military kid? Yeah. And uh, the sort of Christian, pseudo-Christian family scenario. So it was like double repression. Yeah, and uh, I, I think particularly the military thing, uh, it just, and, and I, I think, I mean, we're all born, you know, the foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and uh, rebelliousness was, was the hallmark of the 60s. And and I and was just a rebellious and still you know fight rebellion we all do will we'll our whole lives but but that stultifying upbringing of the military you know I don't even think my dad who who had been you know uh, a GI a dog faced GI pulled himself up by his bootstraps gone to officer candidate school and I mean he was a military man you know total spit and polish short back and sides on the hair. I mean, he, you know, he would freak out when we would have our hair begin to grow out a little bit and stuff. And and, and in some ways, you know, they say that discipline without love engenders rebellion. Hmm. And I think you can give love without discipline and get rebellion, too. I think you can just give and give and give and, and not set any boundaries. But but it's certainly, I think in me, uh, the, the the sort of, you know, the, the discipline w- was brought a lot of rebelliousness out of me. One, as soon as I left home, went away to college, I just pulled out all the stops, and it was just Katie bar the door, and uh, it was just one long party until I hit the age of 27 and realized that you know there was no more partying. The next party was death. It was that was the next stop on the on the highway to hell basically was was death and I'd done it all and seen it all and smelled it all and smoked it all. Smoked it all yeah. and drunk it all yep. and sniffed it all yep. and shot it all and done it all and none of it did what it was supposed to do. You okay. know, there was that momentary feeling and you know I it's like the Scotch ad. You, you can't look like the people in the Scotch ad if you use the product. It's like a, the the cigarette ad. You, nobody, yeah. you know, they, their lungs are black and they're dying. When you were Dan, when you were twelve, your mom told you about the Lord and you first surrendered your life to Christ. But looking back on that, do you think that was a genuine commitment? Uh, I, I do. I really do. I think there was a part of me though that saw it as a free pass. I, I really do. I mean, I've, I've examined and thought about it, and and I thought, well, I'm saved now. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, chiching. Yeah, I really did. I thought that's it. I've hit the the the, the lotto spiritually, 
and I can I can get away with anything and and it's crept in slowly but as the years went by and then particularly when when uh when the career in rock and roll took off and I was suddenly just a kid with a sweet tooth who had the key to the candy store and and I there was a part of me that thought oh you know it doesn't really matter what I do and and, and frankly on some level I be, I became an apostate I began to uh, not just turn my back on Christianity. I began to dabble in yoga and meditation and uh, began to whore after other gods, as it were. Yeah. And I'm ashamed to say that, but I will admit that. And I repented and, and refuted those, uh, those forays into that other world of spiritualism, but... God, in his infinite grace, allowed me to live long enough to see the error of my ways. And, you know, the odd thing was is, is that sometimes people have to be, you know, in a gutter at the bottom of the, you know, skid row. Sure. And I I was literally living in a million-dollar house on a 300-knot Persian rug with, with the Mercedes and a Porsche in the driveway. And I got on my knees and I said, God... I've done everything. I've I've tried yoga. I've smoked brown rice. I've I've done everything that's supposed to be find me peace and do these things. And I said I know I made a wrong turn. But one thing my mother did tell me when I was twelve, she said, "Son, you may walk away from Jesus, but He will never leave you nor forsake you." And I at that point I said, "Lord, I, I have sinned against you." As David said, and against you only have I sinned. All sin is against God. And and I repented completely and said, Lord, I don't need any of this stuff. I've gone the wrong way, and I turn around now. To repent means to turn around and go the other way. And I said, all of this I, I, I committed into your hands. None of it has brought me any kind of peace or joy. And all I want is you, and all I need is you. And um, within about six months, virtually all of it was gone. It was in a forest fire, just like these ones that raged through California recently. The million-dollar house was gone, the paintings on the wall, the grand piano, guitars. The... It was all gone. All the stuff was gone. The insurance company basically went, pulled their pockets and said, hey, gee, I think we're running out of money here. Oh, I don't know if man. we can pay you or not. And, Unbelievable. Uh, I was now out of the band, and it was like a divorce. Everything was tied up. My neighbor was suing me over some frivolous thing, which in California is sort of a kind of a sport, suing each other. <laughs> yeah. They just do it for fun. And, Drew, i got to tell you, I felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. But at the same time, I, I had begun to know people who, who took God at his word and really trusted in him. And what I learned was that, you know, everything may not go perfectly in your world. But the first thing God wants is your thanks and your praise, even in the bad things. As Job says, though you slay me, yet will I praise you. You know, everything is not going to be cherry pie. Yeah, but Dan, you had just <laughs> bought into the Jesus program and yeah. and, <laughs> and your house burned down. Yeah, and, in fact... Did that not make your head go... Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, I had written the song... All things are possible on the piano that then burned about three months later. And yes, with God, all things are possible. But 
you know, God is in charge. We are not in charge. He is not our servant boy. And he is sovereign. And he does what he wills, when he wills. And we wait on him, you know. Hmm. And those who wait on him will mount up as on wings of eagles. So All right. it's a great God that we serve. And he works in mysterious ways. But I just, you know, I, I, I know there's a, a great controversy out there in the land amongst the various factions of we can have everything we want and we never have to be sick and those who think you know well you know if you read the whole chapter of hebrews 11 the first half they got everything they they were delivered from the lion's den they were they were miracles galore and then the second half didn't but that didn't mean god didn't love them but it what god looks at is our heart the condition of our heart and without faith it's impossible to please him and and we're tested, we're tried, and uh, to God be the glory. So I'm just, you know, if you're going through a hard time out there, know that God loves you. We were never promised a rose garden, but uh, hang in there, you know, because uh, he can and does do miracles. I believe in miracles. I do. I've seen them with my own eyes. Hmm. But I am not the author of those things. He is, and he does them in his own way and in his own time. Dan Peake from the supergroup America. You know, I'm still hung up in the brown rice thing, man. I'm still thinking, <laughs> dude, that must have... Uh... It was hard to keep it lit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, let's get off that one. Uh, you went to school for American Kids, which is where you met uh, Jerry and uh, and Dewey. But um, America wasn't your first band. Cyclones, the Centrics, the Psychedelic Blues Band, Genesis Days. My goodness, out of all these bands, which one did you feel was the purest musical experience? Oh, probably the days. That's where Jerry and I first teamed up. And uh, we had gone from just covering other people's stuff, like Louie Louie and, you know, uh, Wipeout, to rearranging songs, taking uh, River Deep, Mountain High, stuff like that, and putting our own spin on it. And that, that be- began the uh, the genesis of our own songwriting. So it was like... Suddenly, you know, somebody hands you a lump of dough, and if you're a top 40 band, you take that lump of dough and you make it look just like the one that's, you know, in the charts. Yeah. But we would take that lump of dough and make it into something similar, but somewhat different. You know, it was uh, so that began this process of of going from just copying what other people did to beginning to create our own thing. And that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, for a writer or for an artist or for anyone who is in the creative uh, world is to to begin to develop your own stuff. You know, it's like you can take a piece of tracing paper and trace the Mona Lisa, but to sit down and, you know, just take a pen and, uh, and uh, paper and begin to draw your own masterpiece, that's a challenge. Looking back on it, uh, Dan, did it really go this fast? You signed to Warner Brothers, and the single from your first album, Horse With No Name, goes to the top of the charts. Next thing you know, you have 21 gold and platinum albums, the Grammy Award, Mercedes and Porsche in the driveway, and a beautiful Persian rug on the floor of a multi-million dollar home in Malibu overlooking the ocean. It happened so fast, Drew. It was it was like strapping ourselves to a Saturn V rocket and, and push and go. And none of us... I mean, none of us had any idea that it would be that dramatic, that rapid, that intense. And and frankly, in many ways, it was years after sort of stepping back from that first seven-year 
rocket ride till I could really begin to appreciate what happened because once the first hit came out and then had to be followed by another hit and another hit and another hit and the pressure was on to keep writing and producing and making these records and then touring to support them and really in some ways over committing to the touring process yeah. uh, and then we realized hey we, we can't do all of this and that's when we called Sir George Martin and said please sir will you help us <laughs> and did you say it with a British accent uh, y- y- yes I believe we did we said that hello sir please sir you know? may I have some more please sir may I have some more <laughs> exactly that was it and and bless his heart, uh, Sir George said yes, he would, and uh, and that that was began a whole new chapter in the whole sort of fairy tale experience of having been in this group and, and working with George. I mean, and you know, one of the Beatles would pop in and say, "Hey, and have a cup of tea," and <laughs> and it was just like, "Pinch me, is this really happening?" Yeah. I mean. Tell us about the first time you heard Horse With No Name backsold as Neil Young. Oh, that, that was in Philadelphia. I will never forget it. It was late at night. We were coming back from a sold-out show at, I think it was the main point in Philadelphia at the time, was one of the, the first-tier clubs that you would play. And this was, we had already been in Waterloo, Kitchener-Waterloo, and then maybe I think we did we did a week there, then a week in Lenny's on the Turnpike in Boston, and then another week in, in D.C., and the, the song had just been released and was beginning to get up the charts and beginning to gather some steam. And I remember it was late at night, and we're coming back from the show, and we're in the back of this darkened limo, and the radio's on, and all of a sudden, Horse With No Name comes on. And nobody said a word. It was like, wow, we're hearing ourselves on the radio. And at the end of the song, the DJ and the old, really, you know, muffled, cool FM, that was Neil Young with his new song, The Horse With No Name. <laughs> no way. Yeah, and I mean, we just all, this hysteria broke out. I mean, we didn't know if he was goofing. We didn't know if he really believed it. We just, but it, it apparently created a huge mystique and, uh, and a mysterioso-type vibe around the band Nobody knew if we were American. Nobody knew if we were British. Some people actually said it was Neil Young recording under the name America. And all it did was, in many ways, just engender a great curiosity. Sure, created, created a buzz. Uh, it, did, it sure did. Yeah. You know, back in the day, there seemed to be so many uh, hidden meetings embedded in the lyrics of so many songs. And maybe it is today as well, but I just remember being all kind of weirded out about it, especially in the Jesus scene. You know, we're like, oh, if you play something backwards, then a demon's going to yeah. crawl out of the album or whatever. Yeah. But either that or it was all just really good marketing ploy. Were, were any of your songs laced with sort of double meetings about sex or drugs? Like, I always wondered about Sandman, for example. Well, Sandman was a real personal uh, song about the Vietnam War, actually. A, a good friend of... Uh, of ours, because all of us were at that age that we were draft material, and the the Vietnam War was kind of literally grinding down, and one of our friends had enlisted, and he'd gotten back from boot camp, and we're still living in England at the time, and none of us have been drafted yet. I came within a hair's breadth of of going, Hmm. Uh, but there was a, a pub just across the street from a place where we used to play, and we were in, sitting around having a beer, and this guy came in, and, you know, he'd been in Nam, 
He'd been in country, and it was like, Bob, wow, it's just great to see you, man. How are you doing? And he goes, oh, man, it, it's really, really rugged. And Dewey said, well, what, what's, what's the hardest part of it? He goes, you can never sleep, because if you fall asleep, you don't know if you'll ever wake up. And so the Sandman, you know, we grew up with Mr. Sure, Sand, you sure. know, the guy who throws the sand in your eyes and puts you to sleep. Yep. So the Sandman was the sleep that you were, you were okay. never could fall asleep. And I've often wondered as a insomniac what that must be like to have to be under that intense, you know, uh, emotional and hysterical and frightening and brutal uh, terror, and yet know that if you fall asleep, you may never wake up. So Dan Peake from America has no lyrical regrets as you look back. You know, you're a Jesus guy now. Do you look back and go, oh, my goodness, that's just... Well, I probably have more lyrical regrets from songs I wrote <laughs> in the, in the Jesus BCM days. genre than, than uh, maybe one or two in the... In the in, yeah, I do. If you go back to... Uh, there was the song "Everyone I Meets from California," where where I was really at this point where I was really questioning, you know, my faith and beginning down the road to apostasy. And there's a line where it says, "Heaven may be an answer if you're looking for Eden in the sky." Hmm. And and uh, it, I, I was, you know, I felt like I was equivocating the whole issue. So. Well, good thing it was on the B side, a horse with no name. Then, yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> but it, it, you look back, but then on the other hand, there were songs that I wrote that God used in a, such a great way, like "Lonely People." At the time, I was still lost, wandering around in the wilderness of sin, and God has used that song, "Lonely People," in its original version to touch people's hearts, because if there is a common uh, you know, malady to the human condition, it's loneliness. Mm. And you can be in Toronto in the middle of however many million people, or you can be alone, you know, on a farm in the middle of nowhere. But loneliness, you know, has nothing to do with being alone. It's a, it's an, it's an inside job. So when, when, when I, uh, found that it, it wasn't even getting married, it wasn't, you know, being in a group, it wasn't being in a crowd, it wasn't being at a party, that God had written that song in some ways in advance for me to to speak to people, the condition of loneliness. Jesus, again, he said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm, there's one who's closer than a brother, you know. He calls us friend. There, There is the God of the universe who put on a human outfit and came here to live amongst men. And he's done everything. He is everything. And all glory is to him. And as David said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Right. Here is the God who created everything. And yet he loves us. He loves us so much that he gave his most valuable creation, his own son, that we might have eternal life. So there, there is a way, there is an answer. There's a way to fill that God-shaped vacuum that someone once wrote about, and it's, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. Today's a day, woman tonight, lonely people, don't cross the river, 
California Revisited. <laughs> and then in the late 70s, at the peak of it all, no pun intended, uh, you, you made the uh, choice to leave America. Was it mostly based on this on this Jesus stuff happening, or, or was it sort of interpersonal conflict with the boys? It, it was both, because, uh, the, you know, light and darkness cannot have fellowship together and and on the and I'm not you know saying that Dewey and Jerry were necessarily bad people no but you were totally going down I mean once you bought into the Jesus program you you were definitely going down different roads that's it and you can't put uh, new wine into old wine skins and that was what the verse that kept coming into my head and I you know was preaching it to those guys and saying hey look I'm 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 saved, man. I'm a Christian. You know, you ought to be like me. Ooh. And how'd that, here's go, how'd that go who, over? You know, a week before was drinking Jack Daniels and smoking <laughs> two packs a day, and and still struggling. You yeah. know, it wasn't an overnight. Uh, some people are delivered instantaneously, but not you. But not me. I mean, there were some things that were instantaneous, but there was a, 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 some battles with some with some substances that that went on for a little bit longer, but. They're, they're, you know, they rebelled at the whole concept. I mean, salvation, the gospel is the stench of death to to the unsaved, the people whose hearts have been hardened to it. So I stunk to them. I was just the stench of death. And on some level, well, not on some level, it says so in the Bible. I mean, we become dead to the world, and the world becomes dead to us. So you can't really stay in that position. And on the other hand, I was too weak to continue in the 24-hour party that was my life in America. And I could not say no. You know, the old Nancy Reagan, just say no. I could not just say no. And I really, it was like a monk-like experience that I needed. You know, they didn't have rehab back then. This is before Betty Ford you couldn't just, you know, say, hey, I'm going to take three weeks and go to the canyon and have a high colonic and a schwitz and I'll be better. <laughs> you know, I just had to get, sever every tie I had with everybody, and they knew it. Yeah. They wanted it. I needed it. So that's when you decided to go all Jimmy Buffett and move down to Grand Cayman for 15 years. That was it. There you go. And uh, <laughs> But that in itself was, was, I had no idea that, A, that this, was I just wanted to go my, it was my wife who grew up on an island she lived on Guam and the Marianas and lived in Panama on the basically on the sea there and we had lived in Malibu and she just said look I, I really want to live on the water again is there any way we can do that and I said well you know I, I'm not really tied to any kind of a thing here I've, I've got the freedom I can go there and do it and so we just went and basically became, you know, do-it-yourselfer, fixer-upper, house buyer, builder, seller, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I, I got to admit, I did have some retirement money set aside, so I wasn't doing it for a living. But in many ways, I just became a carpenter. And you know, uh, well, you took the Jesus thing seriously, didn't you? Very much so. You know, <laughs> and I thought, hey, you know, I used to hit my with a hammer and go, gee, what did he say? You know, <laughs> I know what I just said. I don't think he said that. <laughs> and I've asked a couple of people, what did he say? And yeah. they all said, ouch. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I I was, you know, so I, there was a, there's something about wood and working with things, and there's something about carpentry that you begin to realize that 
almost everything is fixable yeah. with wood. You know, the difference that you and the boys, you know, two roads diverge sort of a thing, and that you all of a sudden just made a left turn or right turn, depending if you're a Republican or, or not, Um it's very similar from what I understand to Randy Bachman and, and Burton Cummings uh, breaking up, because I think Randy kind of got into the, the Mormonism stuff. Wow. And Burton, Burton still wanted to party hard. Yeah. So it was, that was, I think, now don't quote me on this, but I think that was a dividing factor in their, in their scene. So very similar to your, no kidding. Your scenario in America. Yeah. And it's, you know, if someone takes that great divergent term, I mean, it's hard enough. Let's face it, it's hard enough to get along with people anyway. Yeah. But, but when you're, you know, the Bible says two cannot walk together unless they're agreed. And if, you're, if your disagreement is over something so fundamental as, as your worldview, your spiritual, you know, hereafter worldview, which, which affects every aspect and facet of your life. If you allow it to permeate every aspect yeah. of your life. And, and, and which is... Which is what we're supposed to do. Yeah. We're supposed to just become, you know, the little Christs, Christians. And so it's got to be uh, a point, you know, I mean, maybe if I had been stronger and, and been a believer longer, but I I just couldn't do it, and, and they couldn't put up with me no. anymore. No. And really, frankly, I mean, I was a jerk. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a weasel. You don't want to spend a lot of time with me. No. <laughs> And folks, again, just to remind you, we're on the phone with Dan Peake, of course, a founding member of the Supergroup America. I love saying Supergroup because, to be honest, there are very few out there. I love it when you say it, too. <laughs> good. It makes me feel happy. Good, good. <laughs> All warm and fuzzy inside. Yeah. Um, what's your reaction these days when you're driving down the road and an America song comes on? I, I still get a total joyous buzz from it. I mean, I... I, I None of us really, as I said, things went so far beyond what we had hoped for. I mean, I think if you ask most musicians, what is your goal at the outset, is really just to make a living in music. If I could make it in music, you know, if it's at the Holiday Inn, if it's wherever it is, if it's... Bar, and, bar but, mitzvahs. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, you just want a musician. A musician <laughs> just wants to musician. And... And when when we had these songs that went on and have gone on and continue to go on, and somebody told me there's a, a movie out now uh, with Ventura Highway is in the soundtrack, uh, the one about the football team that all the kids died in the. Oh right, we are we are Marshall. Yeah, apparently Ventura Highways. Oh, uh, that's and, right. And, and so I'm going, you know, this stuff. It, it's just amazing how. Because you work so hard. I mean, I got to tell you, uh, it, it the work, and, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, asking for somebody to pat me on the back here. But I mean, there are people. Maybe for Paul McCartney, he just wakes up and breathes, you know, brilliant, beautiful songs. But but it was a lot of work. Yeah. It was a lot, a lot of work, blood, sweat, and tears. As uh, Bob Dylan once said, blood, "There's blood on the tracks." Oh yeah, and. Uh, it's it's very very gratifying and very satisfying to know that the music lives on, and and it's it's a it's a job where you know most people go through life and nobody ever says you did good, and and that hurts me. You know, I mean, my wife has what she calls a ministry of praise. If it's the guy <laughs> who's the sanitation guy, she's patting him on the back and giving him an orange juice. 
if it's wherever the checkout guy at the thing, nice. because, you know, the whole world wouldn't function unless everybody else did their job. And, and really, in some ways, music is completely unnecessary. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and he uses the weak things to confound the mighty. And in some ways, music is just this, you can't touch it, you can't hold it, you can't taste it. You can't. Only thing you can do is hear it. And yet, God used. I mean, they used it in battles. Hmm. The the Israelites had the vanguard that went out ahead. The Scots used the bagpipe to scare the, you know, whatever out of the enemy. <laughs> but it's nice, and I and I'm I'm grateful, and I certainly don't deserve it. But that people still seem to enjoy what we labored so hard to do, and that's what we wanted to do. We yeah. wanted to make music that people liked and and it's very gratifying to know that people did like it and they still seem to like it. Dan, I know you've been asked a billion times about the chances of dusting off the harmonica and the 12 string and there being an America reunion. So I won't ask that. All I'll say is how's the current relationship with Dewey and Jerry? Any unresolved issues there? Oh, there are so many <laughs> apparently to get all Dr. <laughs> Phil on you. Yeah, you know, in fact, uh, about several months ago, uh Randy, uh, not Randy, Rusty Young from Poco, the band Poco. He's one of the nicest guys in, in the world, in the business, and he's the steel guitar player. Oh, right, he, won, right. he won, like, award after award, and he wrote Crazy Love yeah, and yeah. some of their big hits and stuff. And, and America was near where a place that I was going to be, and he tried to arrange a lunch, and basically they kind of just gave me the cold shoulder so i i don't know whether it's you know i said some things in the book that maybe i probably shouldn't have said well that's what, that's where i was going to go to next i mean how did how did the boys feel about the book i my suspicion is they may have read it i doubt they would admit they have yeah but on the other hand you know it, it's it, the fool utters his whole mind but i didn't tell half of it i mean i believe me i kept Way more than half of it under wraps. Yeah. So, so if that if, if that much makes you cringe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. An American band, the America story is is the book. Yeah. I mean influences, uh, Beach Boys, Surfing USA, you know stuff, Beatles, Clapton, Cream, Jimi Hendrix, wow. but but on the electric. Let Let's talk about songs like Pipeline, Wipeout, oh. Ap Apache, Wheels, Detour. Yes. yes. Absolutely. In fact, and uh, the Yardbirds, Jeff Beck. I mean, I. There was something in his just just sort of insane schizophrenic type of, and I'm not knocking schizophrenic because I are too, but they he there I loved his avant-garde style of playing, hmm. and the control of Clapton versus the sort of just avant-gardeness of of uh, of uh, Jeff Beck, and then Jimmy Page, of course, right there in the middle sort of combining the best of both worlds of all that. And, and and I was the person who just, you know, really studied the technique. And I can't believe you listed off all those songs and those influences, which yeah, I think you you sort of picked up on those on yourself. And uh, good good on you for doing your homework there, because that's exactly what I, I uh, went to school on as a youngster on the guitar. What I can't get over is, is how many people you've hung with that i i i don't know i still just have my heartbeat changes when i hear their tunes i mean let's let's go through the list here the beatles obviously the beach boys Joni mitchell the eagles james taylor crosby stills nash and young rod stewart elton john cat stevens 
Jackson Brown, Stevie Wonder. I mean, are you are you close with any of these folks today? Or did buying into Jesus mean that you kind of had to leave that whole world behind? Well, you know, it's funny because there's that... You, I, I, I used to get a picture of it like maybe in Hollywood, everybody just hangs out at each other's houses all day long and, you know, does lunch every day. And, <laughs> and it's not quite that intimate of a world. So... I, 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 there are people truly. I mean, Rod Stewart is one of the most gentlemanly people. He, he, he completely belies his image. I mean, he, he comes off as this gruff soccer hooligan type of a person, but he's such a gentleman. He's a person I would love to see and sit down and have lunch with, but I haven't seen him in low these many years. And, and I really, uh, other than say Rusty and I, I'm trying to think because I keep a pretty low profile. I've not really seen many of those people for a long, long time. Hmm. Your wife, Catherine, here's, here's another thing that blows me away. For you being such a meathead in such a, <laughs> such a goofy business, married for 34 years now. Yeah, yeah. How the heck did you yeah. do that, especially through those years of extreme narcissism? Oh, because she's way too good for me. And why she stuck it out with me, I, I, I have no idea. In fact, uh, she she just is one of the most patient human beings on the planet. And and she, you know, I, I don't deserve her. She's way too good for me. And, and it's only by the grace of God that we're still together. And, and, and I don't mean that because I know other people who who probably deserve to be married still and things have not gone the way they wanted them to go. But, but she just... Uh, all I can say is she's just a tremendously patient person who put up with my my nuttiness and my foibles, and I think part of it is because I can make her laugh. Wow. She, she, I can I can just really crack her up and uh, you know get her running for uh, for cover. You know and, the uh, the only time my wife ever laughs at me is when I hurt myself. <laughs> Well, hey, you got to be willing to take one for the team. Yeah, you know? my marriage has survived on slapstick. You there know? you go. That's, That's it. I think slapstick is the universal language and humor. It is. It's got to be. But uh, Catherine helped you write the lyrics for Lonely People, right? Yeah, she did. And you, you rewrote that later and included some Christian stuff in yeah, it. Exactly. And uh, In fact, a guy came up to me at a concert one time and said, you know, why don't you just sort of spell it out in that song, you know, a little more clearly that that Jesus is the answer, and I thought, well, you know, sometimes things are, you know, Jesus spoke in parables, and he, he did things, but then there were times where he, you know, laid it all out, and so I just thought, you know, I, I'll go ahead and do that, and yeah. I did re-record the song and put an overt gospel message in it, but yeah, Catherine, uh, I was stuck on the second verse. I had already written originally Strong, lonely people thinking that life has passed you by. Don't give up till you drink from that silver cup and ride that highway in the sky. And I just couldn't think of a second verse. And we had just gotten married, and she said, "How about this is for all the single people, thinking that love has left them dry." And I thought, okay, so we got a song here. So it was, uh, and that's sort of been the way you know marriage is, and that's how life is. The Bible says. Two heads are better than one, basically. You know, two people, you know, if one of you falls down, yeah. the other one lifts you up. And so it, it uh, but, but then the end of the story is that even though we were married and, and, and I thought, this is it, my lonely days are over, the real answer was that, no, they weren't over because 
Christ was not at the center of my life, nor her life. Hmm. And, and she was not a believer. She was not a Christian. And then about three or four years later, she got saved. And all of a sudden, I had no more excuse to be the bad boy. I hate when that happens. Yeah, isn't that <laughs> awful? So when she got saved and she got right with God, I went, you know, Lord, this is it. Hmm. All, I, I used to, in some ways, I'd use her an excuse like, well, my wife's not saved. I, I got to live like a heathen because she just wouldn't get it. We wouldn't get along. And but when she got saved, it was like a wake up call from the Lord saying, okay, pal, you know. Your other half is right. Now you need to yeah. get it right. And and the great lesson that I learned is is that it's not a wife, it's not a husband, it's not a child, it's not a job, it's not a boss, it's not the car, the thing. The, it all has to be him first. You know, it's that godly order. God, family, work in that order, or it never will work. And, and, and she understood that too. And I, I even said one day, look, you cannot put me first anymore. You got to put God first, and I have to put Him first, or our thing will never work. And and if there is a secret to the lasting of the marriage, it was when we came to that realization and commitment that God has to be number one, because otherwise things just get out of balance. Wise words from Dan Peak, founding member of the Grammy-winning supergroup America. Uh, I, I quite often do this, but I'll keep this to a short list. Three names I want to drop on you, and I'd like uh, sort of a, how, you, how would you describe them in one word or one quick sentence? Okay, you ready? Ready. Bob Hope. Oh, you know, I can remember when I was a child thinking that if Bob Hope died, the world would come to an end. And he, he brought so much joy and laughter to me as a child that, uh, and, and I was blessed with meeting him and privileged with meeting him in person, and we performed on one of his shows, did Sister Golden Hair, in fact, on one of his specials, and he was a great man and uh, is sorely missed. Was John Wayne on that same show? John Wayne, yes, was on that show, and they were like two little kids. It, they had been friends for so many years, and you you know being backstage, you could sort of you know catch the the camaraderie and the love, and it was palpable. These guys hmm. were two great, great dear friends. Garth Brooks. Garth Brooks. I've never had the pleasure of meeting him, but I I bless him because uh, my standard of living is. <laughs> It had a little little bit of a bump in the last couple of years because he cut one of my tunes and I mean. So you worked with him, but you never worked with him. I, I he, according to legend, and he listened to 800 songs and chose "Don't Cross the River" out of that and not the America version, a band whom I had never heard. Uh, Dar- uh, I think it was something Lawson and Quicksilver. Not not the original Quicksilver, but oh Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver. It sounds like a law firm. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And he had done a bluegrass version of Don't Cross the River, which Garth had somehow heard, and he decided to put that on his comeback album Scarecrow. Also put it on his greatest hits uh, or whatever it was, his latest box set. So if you're out there listening, Garth, thank you, sir. I certainly appreciate it, and uh, it's paying my electric bill this month. Oh, nice, nice. Final one, George Harrison. Uh, George Harrison, uh, just a gentle, gentle soul who I never really got to spend a great deal of time with, had a very interesting 
almost embarrassing anecdote, which I relate in my book. I was hoping you'd get into this. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was so strange that you, you almost, it was a Larry David moment, truly, uh, <laughs> a curb your enthusiasm, yeah. Larry David moment. And real br- briefly, I'll just say, uh, I had bought a coat in Los Angeles that this guy had touted as only one other guy in the whole world had it, and he was a very famous rock star, but he wouldn't drop his name. And I thought, yeah, baloney. So I bought this coat. The next day I get on a plane and I fly to England. I go to London. I go downtown to Derek Taylor, who was the Beatles' publicist's office. I knew Derek very well. Uh, I went inside, and when I walked in, the doorman said, Oh, hey, good to see you again, George. And he just sort of looked up. And I thought, George? I walked in to Derek's office, and I sat down, and Derek was in the bathroom or something, and the door opened, and in walked a clone of me. And I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, and he turned on his heel and walked out, never said a word. George had on the identical jacket, the identical (laughs) scarf that the guy sold me. We both had long hair, beards, blue jeans. It was... That is a Larry David moment. It was a Larry David moment. That's like Bizarro World or something. And all I want to know is what he said to the guy at Maxfield Blue, which was the name of the shop. It's probably, you know, he probably went, you know, who knows. Anyway, I imagine he had a word or two for the guy there. Yeah, yeah. You told me no one else would ever, yeah, I got it. No, in fact, because he had bought the bolt of cloth, taken it himself by hand to the store, and the guy said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll make you a coat out of it. But he had enough to make two. But he didn't tell George <laughs> Didn't that. tell, no. That's and he right. thought, how's he ever going to find yeah, out? Yeah, that's and hilarious. His cover was blown, though. Dan Peake, just a final uh, question here for you. Thank you again so much for your time. You, you just had a birthday last week, I think. Yeah. 57. 34. Yeah, whatever. It's, it's, I'm, I'm regressing with whatever. positive thinking. Yeah, it's like Mork and Mindy, right? It's uh, <laughs> yeah. reverse aging. Him and Jonathan Winters. Um, how will Dan Peake celebrate his 60th birthday? You know, uh, I thought about getting together with uh, a bunch of folks that I knew from uh, from down in the islands because they were all just wiped out by Hurricane Ivan. Yeah. And we had, had uh, pulled up stakes and moved on by that time. Uh, I did an album called Drifton, which because I just felt like it was time to move on. And I, so much of my life has been just as a gypsy that and and but many 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 of my friends that stayed there and went through that and just lost everything and were just very much devastated not only you know financially and physically and but emotionally and now it's uh you know the hurricane season's winding down this year and it hasn't been as bad as they predicted but my heart goes out to anybody. I mean, it's like Katrina, you know. I mean, yeah. I'm sure those folks. Every time there's a rainstorm, everybody's hunkered down somewhere, shivering. Well, I was just in Grand Cayman, uh, gee, uh, earlier this year, and uh, it's surprising how they're really rebuilding again. Yeah. And yeah. I heard the story from a local. He said, you know, this whole area here was wiped out, and what you see here was never here, and you just can't, you couldn't imagine it. No, in fact, in some ways, uh, it, it may have been a positive. I mean. Everything there before had been limited to three stories in terms of the height of structures on the beach, which gave it a very, very you know low-key, small-town, small-island feel. But after the hurricane, I think they thought, you know, if we don't 
rebuild and rebuild big and make them high and you know yeah. you know strike while the iron's hot so they lifted the moratorium on the building heights and so apparently uh, they're building with great zeal and gusto on Seven Mile Beach there. Oh, they were? The, I couldn't believe it. Coast. I mean, I, I walked by about, on that beach, I walked by about easily, easily half a dozen, quite possibly a dozen projects that were in the middle of construction. So. Wow, wow. Hey, listen, uh, Dan, thank you, thank you, thank you. Your music, your life, uh, your journey, it, it's been an inspiration to me. I've wanted to have you on the show ever since I started this show, and I'm sorry it took to my fifth season to get to you. Hey, my apologies. I'm, hey, listen, it's my pleasure, and uh, I'm, I'm just tickled pink that uh, you thought of having me. God bless you. you I, too, I, I really sir. hope he does. You, you too. All right, Dan. Take care, mate. Okay, Drew. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye-bye. Dan Peek from America. We'll go out with one of his songs that really put them on the charts as well. Lonely People. We'll be right back. This is for all the lonely people Thinking that life has passed them by Don't give up until you Drink from the silver cup And ride that highway in the sky Like what you've heard? Listen again online at drewmarshall.ca Silver cup, you never know.